The title of our message today is From Religious Legalism to Freedom in Christ. From Religious Legalism to Freedom in Christ. There are those today who get caught up in legalism. They want to keep the law and believe that somehow if you don't keep the law that you're not really doing all that God's told you to do. If you could imagine 2,000 years after the time of Christ, almost 2,000 years since the destruction of the temple, that we still have people today who are legalists who will tell you you're not really serving God unless you are following dietary restrictions or certain parts of the Torah. They pick and choose what they want. If we still have that around today, can you imagine how much trouble there was in the days of transition when they were transitioning from the temple, which Jesus went to, right, and, 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 and died on the day of Passover? And while the temple was still around, for about 30 years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the temple was still there. People were still going to the temple. Christians were getting saved and still giving sacrifices. That's part of why the book of Hebrews was written. It was written before the temple was destroyed. Now, I think God had to get rid of the temple because I think if the temple were still around today, there would be a large section of people who would be legalists and telling us as Christians that we have to keep the Old Testament law. Now, it's important to understand that the law is not bad. Paul says this in Romans. The law is not bad. The law is good. But he says the law is weak in that it can't save you. I love in Hebrews where it says the, the law can't save you, but Jesus saves you to the uttermost. He goes way beyond what the law could do. The law is there to show you that you have sin in your life. There had to be something to show humanity that we fall short, that we have sin, that we're not living up to God's standards. It's hard enough with the law to be able to tell people that. Can you imagine it without it? So God gave the law. People lived by it for hundreds of years so that we could one day be set free from the law. Now, before we get into this section, I want to cover verses 1 through 8 today. This is an in-depth study of the book of Philippians. I want us to look at a few things. I want us to look at what the Bible has to say about avoiding legalism. I want us to look at what the Bible says about works, whether or not we're saved by works and how works play into it, because we do know that works play into what we do as Christians, just not our, I'm going to give you a big word now, just not our soteriology. Soteriology is the theological word for salvation and works don't enter into soteriology. They work into evidence that you really are a believer, but not how you are saved. All right, so I want to look at these three things first and just take a look at what the scriptures say and then we'll take a look at what Paul says. So I want to take a look at you cannot be saved by works. You have freedom in Christ and what God's purpose for that freedom we have in Christ is and avoiding legalism, that we really need to avoid legalism at all costs. And this is taught so clearly. Hebrews, Galatians, Romans. Paul was, these guys would travel Paul would leave an area, they would come into an area and tell people that they had to be circumcised, that they had to keep the law. And these are, these are people that live in Greece. They're in, uh, uh, they're in Philippi. And Paul is really going to get, well, really direct with them. So let's talk first of all about the fact that we are not saved by works. Romans 3.28 says this, Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. The law reveals your sin. 
Faith, you receive the grace that God gives you, and we are saved apart from the deeds of the law. This is important in a few different instances. There are people that teach baptismal regeneration, that teach that you are born again when you're baptized. There are people in the book of Acts that get saved before they're baptized. Also, Paul says in 2 Corinthians, I didn't baptize any of you. And then he remembers, except for this person, this person, and this person. But God didn't send me to baptize, but he sent me to preach the gospel. If baptism were works that saved you, then Paul would have never have said that. He would have said, God sent me to baptize. But he said he didn't send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. It wasn't that people weren't being baptized because we're supposed to be. It's that he didn't see it as salvation. There are also those that believe that there are certain works that have to be added on later on. Speaking in tongues or uh, certain sacraments under the Catholic Church that they believe take a part in salvation through works. The Bible clearly speaks against that. Galatians 3.24 says, Therefore, the law was our tutor to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. Verse 25 goes on to say, and because we are now, we, we have the tutor, we no longer need, or because we're with Christ, we no longer need the tutor. The law was a tutor. It taught us about Christ. In Colossians 2.16, it says, don't let anybody judge you with Sabbaths and new moons or festivals or meals or, or drink um, because these things are all a shadow of things to come. The law contained shadows of realities that you and I are living today. In Ephesians 2, 8, 9, and this is the quintessential passage, right, for telling us that we aren't saved by the law. It says, uh, this is Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you have been saved through faith, not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. That's pretty clear. But then you're going to have people who will say, well, James tells us that faith without works is dead. And James does tell us that. It's James 2, 17 and 18. And you can see where there could be confusion. Paul's saying we're not saved by works at all. James is saying faith without works is dead. But what James is saying is when you have faith, then there's fruit that you really have faith by the works that you do. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. We're not saved by keeping his commandments, but because we love him, we now have the evidence that we serve him by the fruit that is in our lives. So works play a part in the Christian life. That's important to understand, but they don't play a part in soteriology, in salvation at all. And so in James 2, 17 and 18, he says this, this is James now, thus also faith by itself, if it does not have works is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. He then goes on to use the example of Christians or people who are like demons who believe and tremble, but they don't put their trust in it. In other words, he's not saying you have to have works to be saved because a demon could never do works to be saved. He's comparing this to people that have demonic faith which is believing, but not putting their trust in him. There are people who believe in God. They believe that he exists. They believe that Jesus died upon the cross, but they don't want to live for him. That's the example that he's using. He's saying, 
If you say you have faith, but there are no works in your life, that's evidence that you don't really have faith. It has nothing to do with the way that you are saved. The second thing that I want to look at is that you and I have an incredible amount of freedom in Christ. And I often say when I'm talking on this topic, I will not allow someone to put me under bondage. I'm not going to allow somebody to put me under the law. I'm just not going to do it. I, I think I've got too good of an understanding of what the Bible says that I'm not going to let somebody come in and tell me that I have to keep these things. Listen to what it says in Galatians 5.1. He says, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which you have made us free. But let me start that over again. Let me read it right. How about that? Stand, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free and do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. This is Galatians 5. Galatians, Paul is writing against the Judaizers, the whole thing. If anybody comes to you teaching you anything different than what you've already heard, he says in chapter 1, let them be accursed. In 2 Corinthians 3.17, he says, Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. Jesus said in John 8.36, Therefore, if the Son of Man makes you free, you are free indeed. The Bible tells us that we have freedom in Christ, not to be under all kinds of bondage, but we're not supposed to use our freedom as an opportunity to sin, but we use our freedom for edification. I have all kinds of freedom in Christ, but I want to make sure that what I'm doing is edifying and that I use my freedom to be able to work for Christ. If I don't have freedom, then I'm really restricted. But if I have freedom, then there's all kinds of things that I am free to do for Jesus. So it goes on to say then in Galatians 5.13, For you, brethren, have been called to liberty. We've been called to liberty. That's why you shouldn't let anybody put you under a yoke of bondage, because you've been called to liberty. Then he says this, Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. That's the danger of liberty. We say, I have freedom. I have freedom in Christ. And so then we use it as an opportunity to live for the flesh rather than to live for Christ. So there is a danger with this freedom. But if God knew that danger, that people might be using it as liberty to sin or liberty for the flesh, but God gave us liberty instead, even though he knew that would be a danger, think about how important that liberty is for us to have and why it's important for us not to let anybody take away that liberty. He goes on to say in Galatians 5.13, but through love serve one another. We're not under the law, but love tells us what you and I are supposed to do. Finally, before we look at the text, I want to consider avoiding legalism, that we want to avoid it at all costs. In James 2.10, he says, for whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stumble in one point, he is guilty of it all. So these people, whoever they are, the Hebrews Roots Movement or other people that are involved in trying to get people to keep the law, they pick and choose. They're not keeping the entire law. They keep what portions they want to keep and they justify other parts of the law. But here James tells us if you err in one part of the law, you've erred in it all. So if you really want to keep the law, if you go, I want to keep the kosher law, I want to keep the dietary law, but I don't, then you better make sure you keep it all. If you're going to just be justified before God by keeping the law, then you have to keep it all. 
And since you can't keep it all, because we know that the law is a mirror, it's, it, it, it is weak, it can't save us, we can't keep the law, it's just to show us their sin, then we can't be justified by it. It's like this vicious circle that people get themselves caught into. Romans eleven sixteen says, and if by grace, and I, I love this passage, by the way, because it's just so direct and clear. It's like Paul is frustrated with the legalists. And so he, he says this, and if by grace, then it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. That's just as basic as you can get. The very definition of grace is undeserved favor. If you're saved by works, then it's no longer grace. He goes on to say, but if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. Let me read this all together because I interrupted it, but you'll get it. He says, Romans eleven six, and if by grace, it is no longer works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. But if it is of works, it is no longer grace. Otherwise, work is no longer work. So you might need to note that down and go back and look at it, but it is so incredibly clear. He's just using work and grace. You can't work for grace, then it, would be, if you're, it wouldn't be work. You can't have grace to, uh, for work because it would no longer be grace. Galatians 3.10. One more, and then we're going to get into our text. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse. Why were you under a curse when you were under the works of the law? Because it's impossible to keep the law. That's what it was showing you. You can't keep it. When, when Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount, if you are angry with your brother, you've murdered him in your heart. And if you look at a woman to lust after her, you've committed adultery in your heart. Be perfect, he goes on to say, as your Father in heaven is perfect. I remember the first time that I read that when I was a teenager, I couldn't figure it out. I was like, is he telling us to be perfect? Do we have to be perfect? And the holiness movement uses that passage in that way to tell you, you need to be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. But what Jesus is pointing out is that even if you think, I've never committed adultery, I've never murdered anybody, Jesus is like, yeah, but you've been so mad you wanted to and you've committed lust in your heart and so therefore you've broken the law. Therefore, be perfect for your Father in heaven is perfect. The standard of God is perfection. Since I can't make perfection happen for me by the law, perfection has to be given to me. So all of my sins are taken away and he gives me righteousness. Now I'm pure, I'm clean, I'm perfect, not because of Robert Furrow and the works that he did, but because of Jesus Christ and the things that he did. That's the gift that's given to us. And that's why you don't ever want to let anybody take it away from you. Because you are perfect by the blood of the Lamb. We now go boldly before the throne because positionally we are perfect the moment we ask him to forgive us of our sins. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I am no longer unrighteous, not because I worked for it, because works could never do it. So he says, cursed is everyone who does not continue in all things which are written in the book of the law to do them. But, the, but that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God. This is Galatians 3, 10 and 11. But that no one is justified by the law in the sight of God is evident for the just shall live by faith. It's evident. You can't be saved by the law in any way, shape, or form. So now Paul 
wants to write to the Philippians because these Judaizers have been there. They're showing up. They're telling them, you guys have to keep the dietary law. The reason that he wrote Galatians is because the Judaizers went to, to Galatia. Peter was eating with the Galatians who are Gentiles, which a good Jewish boy would never do, and probably eating what they were eating. But when the brethren came from James, James is the pastor of Jerusalem, Peter withdrew from them to eat with the brethren from, that were eating in a separate place and eating their kosher meal. And Paul thought that was a slap in the face of the Gentiles. He says, I withstood him to his face and I told him that he was wrong, that, that he would not exercise his freedom among those who were from James, uh, from the church in Jerusalem. And so now they're at Philippi. So he says in verse three, finally, and, and, and Paul's like any good preacher when he says finally or in conclusion, he keeps going. So we got several chapters here yet. And I love that he says finally. Some say it's probably better translated as uh, and continuing kind of thing. But I just love that it's finally and we've got several chapters left. Finally, my brethren, rejoice in the Lord. Again, how many times have we seen that and we're only at the beginning of chapter 3. Rejoice in the Lord. For me to write the same thing to you is not tedious, but for you it is safe. Every good teacher, not just a pastor, but every good teacher repeats himself. Let me say that again. Nah, I set that one up, didn't I? Every good teacher repeats himself. And, and you've got to say things again and again in order for us to really get it. We have to learn it and we grasp it the more we hear it. And so Paul's like, I'm not afraid to tell you the same thing again. Peter says something very, very similar that he's going to tell you again what he already told you, but it's okay. Then he says this, verse 2. Notice that there's three beware there. Beware, beware, beware. All in verse 2. Beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. So dogs were scavengers. They were opportunists. They were, these are street dogs that he's talking about, which sounds like a delicious food, but that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about dogs that live out on the street, right? And they were scavengers. And so these guys were taking advantage of people. They were opportunists. They were showing up when Paul would be out of town, when Paul would be away from there. They were coming in, telling these people that they had to live by the law. It has, it has a sound like it's legitimate, because they've kept the law. And you've got all this law in the Old Testament. And it's got to sound like it's legitimate. But Paul calls them dogs, which is definitely an insult. Paul is a shepherd. Paul has planned the church in Philippi that these people are coming in and doing this to them. He is angry. And he says, beware of the dogs. Beware of evil workers. Beware of the mutilation. He calls them a mutilation because they're going to the Gentiles now and telling them in order for you to really be a Christian, you have to be circumcised. Now, we don't see that so much today, but there are people who will tell you you've got to keep the kosher law. They'll tell you they've got to keep certain kinds of laws or certain laws you've got to keep. You've got to keep the Ten Commandments. You've got to keep the Sabbath day. They are legalists and they're trying to add to it. And so Paul says, beware. This reminds me that in the last days, there are going to be teachers who will be stacked up by the church who tickle their ears. So churches in the last days, people in church want to hear 
what's positive for them. And I've shared before, the largest church in America is a prosperity church. They don't focus on sacrifice, on struggles, how God could use difficulties and tragedies to work his things out in his life, how we're living here and now for the work that God's called us to do, but we will get in heaven and receive everything and that we suffer here if necessary, even being part of the suffering of Christ, that God would use our suffering for the sake of the gospel. They don't teach any of that. They teach that, you know, you want to be happy. You want to be blessed. You want to be enthusiastic. You want to be, you know, all th those kind of things. Uh, the Bible not only tells us that in the last days men are going to heap up for themselves teachers who will tickle their ears, but also that there's going to be men that teach the doctrines of demons instead of the word of God. And so, um, and also remember when Jesus' disciples came to Jesus on Mount, the Mount of Olives and said, when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming? And Jesus said, beware that no one deceives you. For many false Christs are going to arise, saying that I am he. So the first thing that he says about the last days is beware of the false teachers. There are more false teachers today than there were in the days of Paul or in the days of Jesus because we're living in the last days. And we have to be aware of that and be careful. And so he says, beware of dogs, beware of the evil workers, beware of the mutilation. These are the Judaizers that are traveling around telling these new Gentile Christians that they have to keep the law. And then in verse 3, for we are of the circumcision who worship God in spirit. He's saying clearly, you do not have to keep the circumcision of the law because we worship God in spirit. We're of a, we are the circumcision, meaning that we're really committed ourselves to God. The circumcision is the cutting away of the flesh. And so God has circumcised our heart, cutting away the flesh so that we live by the spirit. And those of us who worship in the spirit are the circumcision of God. Paul develops this further in Romans. He develops it a lot further in Romans. When I was uh, first saved, we had a Bible study. I was part of a youth group. I was 14 when I was saved. And um, we had a, a Bible study going on. And it was in Romans where they're talking about circumcision. And they must say, he must say circumcision like 20 times in like a half a chapter. And so afterwards I said, what's, what's circumcision? To the giggling of all the other junior hires <laughs> who were there. What's, what's circumcision? And the, the uh, junior high leader said, I'll tell you later. We'll get together and I'll, I'll tell you later. That's pretty funny. Uh, but we are the circumcision because God has circumcised our hearts. And then he says, rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh. Now, Paul's going to get right down to where we live. Don't have confidence in your flesh. Because even if you say, well, I'm not, I'm not a legalist. I don't try to keep the law. But you think there's other things that you need to do. If you don't pray for an hour a day, then you're really not serving Christ. If you don't read two chapters of your Bible a day, then you're not really serving Christ. There's those legalists as well. Don't put any confidence in the flesh. Yes, we should read God's word. Yes, we should pray. Yes, there are things that we do as Christians. It's just when we put a you have to on there that now it becomes something of the flesh. And the danger is that someone thinks, I'm okay. God, thank you that I fast twice a day, 
that I pray every morning and evening. Thank you that I, you know, th that's the putting the confidence in the flesh. When that means nothing. If you don't have things right between you and God. It's a relationship with God that matters. It's knowing Him. And we're going to see that here in just a few moments. He's going to contrast this confidence you have in the flesh to knowing Christ. It's knowing Christ that matters. Not your confidence in the flesh. There's power that comes from prayer. There's power that comes from knowing God's Word. And so we want to do it. We just don't want to think that we're somehow gaining legal position because we do those things or that we're better than some others because we do those things. And so he goes on to say, have no confidence in the flesh. That's the end of verse 3. Though I also might have confidence in the flesh. He says, these guys that, that come to you, they're Pharisees, they're scribes, they're religious leaders. They're coming. Th these are the very people that, that attacked Jesus when Jesus was alive. And Paul says, I, I have more credentials than these guys. What's Paul is going to say? These mutilators are coming to you and they've got their status, but I have more. Listen to what he says. Though I might have confidence in the flesh, if anyone thinks that he may have confidence in the flesh, I more so. Circumcised on the eighth day, eighth day, so he was born into a Hebrew home, circumcised on the eighth day, of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin. He knew what tribe he was from. And as a side note, have you heard of the lost ten tribes of Israel? There are some people that believe that the word ish means man and Danish, Swedish, anything that's got an ish in it is the lost tribes of Israel. So is foolish, and some other issues that I could think about with it. Um, the ten lost tribes were never lost. They were taken by Assyria into captivity and then they returned. Some of them returned. Many of them were dispersed. But Paul knew he was from the tribe of Benjamin. Benjamin would have been one of the lost tribes. There's other people in the days of Jesus they knew they were from Levi because they, you know, they were priests. They, were, they knew that they were of the tribe of Levi. And so you go and you see that they knew the tribes they were from. It was lost when Rome destroyed Jerusalem in 70 AD and all of the records were destroyed and people were dispersed around the world and not being connected together but being dispersed. What tribe they were from was lost. And that's why today a Jewish person doesn't know what tribe they're from. Not because they were ever completely lost because they knew. So he says, I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, meaning I'm a Hebrew who was born of two Hebrews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. Paul himself was a Pharisee. What a radical change. And what a guy to choose to stand against the law. A guy who lived for the law. Pharisees memorized the first five books of the Bible which not only included Exodus, which is the first giving of the law, and Leviticus, but also Numbers and Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law. So you find a lot of the things repeated. They memorized it. He knew it. Concerning zeal, persecuting the church. He felt that as, a, as someone who was Jewish, that what, following Jesus was false. Concerning the righteousness, which is by the law, blameless meaning he went and he gave all the sacrifices. 
He did everything. He did all the washings that he needed to do. By the law, he was blameless. He says, in essence, he's saying, these guys coming to you don't have the same qualifications that I have in the flesh. I have these things. Then he says this, verse 7, but what things were gained to me, I have counted a loss for Christ. And yet, indeed, I also count things, all things, a loss. I, excuse me, I also count all things loss for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord. He says, I gladly gave up all of that because I wanted to know Christ for the knowledge of Christ. Jesus said, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. For I will say to them, away from me, for I never knew you. In John 17, 3, Jesus said, and this is eternal life, that you keep the law. No. And this is eternal life, that you know the one true God and the Son whom he sent. That's what it is. It's knowing him. We have a relationship with God. We've grown in our knowledge of him. Jesus said, some will say, we've cast out demons in your name. We've done miracles in your name. And he'll say, away from me, for I never knew you. It's interesting to me. I don't know whether they did it or not. Maybe they just thought they did it. Maybe they thought they cast out demons. Maybe they thought they did miracles. But they thought because of those miracles, it was a sign that they were on the right track. And Jesus says, you don't know me. So even if you can look and see things that you think this proves that I'm saved, if you're counting on any other thing saving you except knowing God and the one true son, then you're not going to know him at all. And he was willing to give everything up just for the knowledge of Jesus Christ, his Lord. Then he says this, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things. He says, I came to Christ and to know him and I've suffered the loss of everything and counted them as rubbish. And the word for rubbish here, it's not a crass word, but it's a word for poop. And, and I think the new, new, new King James Bible uses it. And I've heard people say that Paul cussed here and that Paul also cussed when he's, when he's in the um, book of Galatians. But it's not. They, weren't, they were not cuss words. He's simply saying dung, poop. It's like, you know, and it's an, quite literally animal excrement is what he's saying. And how insulting is that to the legalist? Pharisee, Pharisee. I mean, I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. By law, I'm a Pharisee. I was blameless under the law and I've counted that stuff as poop. How fired up do you think Paul is at this point while he's writing this letter? How do you think Paul's feeling when he's writing these things out and says, I have counted them as garbage, rubbish. They are nothing to me. The very things that they highly esteem, I've counted loss and I've counted them as rubbish that I might gain Christ and be found in him. The second thing he says, the reason that he's given up all of those is the knowledge of Christ. And the second thing is to be found in him. You know, the Bible says somewhere around, I think, 90 times that we are in Christ. We talk about Christ being in us. We ask, have you ever received Christ? Is Christ in you? And the Bible definitely talks about Christ being in us. But the Bible more speaks about us being in Christ that we are in him. And, and that, that's a much more secure place. Yeah, having Christ in you is awesome. Christ in you, the hope of glory. People can see Christ in you. But you now are in Christ. What exactly does that mean? 
I'm not sure I understand it completely, but I like it. I got to get in a car to go across town. I got to get into a plane to go across the country. I got to get into Jesus in order to get into heaven. I've got to be found in Christ. And if I'm in Christ, then no wonder the Bible says, well, greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. That's the idea of him being in you. But no wonder we are, have, have such a solid position because not only is Christ in us, but we are in him. And Paul's saying, I gave up the law for the knowledge of Christ and to be found in him. Not having my own righteousness. See, this is where the legalist believes that what they are doing adds to their righteousness, that they're adding something to what God has done. But that's an impossibility. Jesus said on the cross, totelestai, it is finished. He wasn't saying, my work is done. He's saying, our work is done. The work for what? What happened on the cross? Salvation. The work for salvation is completed. He goes on to say then, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. We gain righteousness, not by the law. The law condemns, but righteousness comes through faith in Jesus Christ. Notice the word faith, the term faith there, or the word faith. Through faith in Christ. That's the way we receive righteousness. No other way. As soon as somebody says, well, I receive righteousness by being baptized. Well, I receive righteousness by speaking in tongues. I receive righteousness by, you know, keeping certain parts of the law. Now there's problems because it is by faith and faith alone. He goes on to say here, uh, through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. So he says it two different ways. It's the same thing in two different ways. Let me read it again. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith. It's like Paul just wants you to get it. You, by, it's by faith in Christ you've received righteousness by this righteousness that comes from faith, um, by God, uh, from God by faith. So it is a gift from God, but we have to believe it. We have to have the faith. The just shall live by faith. And so then in verse 10 he says, that I might know him, and the power of his resurrection. And then he says, and the fellowship of his suffering. Christ gave up, I mean, excuse me, Paul gave up everything that they were trying, that they liked that they achieved and were trying to make them achieve it. But Paul says, I've given it up that I might know him in the power of his resurrection, which is great. That God would do powerful things, saving people. The Bible says that's, an, Jesus said that's an impossibility. With men, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. Even every time someone receives Christ, every time they're born again, that's a miracle that's happening in our presence. God's doing a supernatural work in our presence. And he says that I might know him in the power of his resurrection and then in the fellowship of his suffering, the koinonia of his suffering. Paul had suffered greatly. Paul's in prison as he writes this. He, he, I, I, I was going to get the list of all the things that Paul says happened to him. You know, beaten with rods this many times, scourged that many times, shipwrecked and in all these perils, perils of false teachers, perils of, he goes through it all. Paul's had all of this suffering in his life and he says he wants, he's given it all up to know Christ in the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering. And so for us to think that we aren't going to suffer or that God might not use that suffering Jesus said, in this world, you'll have tribulation. He said, you're going to have persecution. 
One of the reasons that Christians suffer is because we're part of humanity and people suffer. And God doesn't keep us from that suffering. He goes on to say now, being conformed to his death by any means, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Now, it sounds like when he says this in verse 11, that I haven't attained the resurrection from the dead. That his resurrection isn't complete, that it's not totally secure, that he might be in some kind of limbo and he's working to try to obtain his resurrection from the dead. But that's not what Paul's saying. There's no way that he can be saying that because otherwise it would contradict all the other things that Paul said about the law. Paul's being humble. He says, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. He knows that the day is going to come that the resurrection is going to take place. Now the resurrection... In the Bible, there's the first resurrection and the second resurrection. You find that the first place in Daniel chapter 12, where it says some will be raised to everlasting life and some will be raised to everlasting contempt. And then in the book of Revelation, it says that there are those that take part in the first resurrection. The first resurrection is the resurrection of Jesus, the rapture of the church, which is a resurrection, and the resurrection of tribulation saints, that's all part of the first res uh, resurrection that's compared to the second death. When at the end of the millennium, Jesus calls all the other people out of their graves and they are called to the second death, not the second resurrection. The first, the first resurrection is compared to the second death so that we want to be a part of the first resurrection. If you're not a part of the first resurrection, then you miss it. And he's saying, I want to know him, the power of his resurrection, the fellowship of suffering, and I've counted all of these things lost to be conformed to his death, if by any means I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Knowing that one day he will be, he will, we will come up out of the grave and he will be given his body. Now in closing, maybe I'll go for another 20 or 30 minutes just to be a Paul. In closing, I want to give you a passage out of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 where he talks about the resurrection. He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We are not we shall not all sleep, but some will be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. There's an intermediate state. When we die, we go into the presence of God, and we're living in this intermediate state. That's a theological word for between the point when you die and the point when you're resurrected. Then when you are resurrected, you will be reunited with your body. And God's big enough to handle any problems that that causes. What about a sailor that fell over and got swallowed by a whale? The whale died and got eaten by fish. Where's that DNA? God's got it. Don't worry about it. God can handle it all, all right? You know, someone's buried by an apple tree. The apple tree gets, you know, the nutrients from the body. Somebody picks an apple and eats it. They die and fall off a cliff. And how's God going to find all those things? God's going to work it out. The Bible clearly tells us that we will have this body. Now, I don't know whether that makes you happy or sad. You're going to look at yourself and go, really? This is the one that I'm going to have being glorified? But Paul in Corinthians tells us that right now we are in seed form and that once we are buried, we will raise as a plant. So when you have a seed and then a plant that comes from it, it's a lot more complex, a lot more beautiful, you could say. And so when we are, we don't know yet what we're going to be, the Bible says, 
but we'll be like him and we'll see him. Our bodies will be glorified. This mortal will put on immortality. This corruptible will put on incorruptible and we will be glorified and we will have no idea what it will be like. But I'll guarantee you, it's not what you see when you look in a mirror. And that is something to be happy about. When you learn you're going to get this body, you might go, ah, maybe I, maybe I should have died at 21 when I was fit and in shape and then I'd have, you know, look 21 forever. I think the glorified body is going to put a 21-year-old to shame. The, the body that we will have with him when we are resurrected. And that's what we're living for. We're not living for today. We're not living for, the, you know, trying to show people the law or how we can live by this legalistic standards. We are looking for that resurrection from the dead. And he was willing to give up all of those things that he might receive these things in Christ. The Bible tells us that our works are like filthy rags before God. That, that kind of puts it all in perspective. If people are out there telling you that you do works for your salvation or you've got to do works for it, but if my works are like filthy rags, then why does God want my filthy rags? Instead, my works then become to help people. They're real works. They're not works for my sake, which is, what it would, which is what the legalist does. The legalist tries to get you to do certain things for your sake, but we're not doing works for our sake. We're doing works because we've been transformed. And we see someone who's in need and we go, I want to help them because of what Christ has done inside of us. And now our works aren't adding value to us at all, but they are helping them. And as we do that, we stand more for Christ and our works then become what works are supposed to be, which is to genuinely, genuinely help the people who are around us. Stand with me, would you? And let's pray together. Father, thank you that we get this section where Paul, in kind of ang uh, a moment of anger, really lays out to them that they should beware of the mutilators. Beware of the legalists. Beware of those who think they are something because of what they've done in the flesh. Lord, we put no trust in our flesh. We put no trust in what, what we can do. We thank you that you have saved us by, by us calling out upon you and that then we are transformed. And we thank you that the evidence that you've been working in our lives is that we do works. We do good works. And Jesus said, let your good works be done in such a way that men would see our good works and glorify our Father who is in heaven. And Lord, we pray that that would be the case. We thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.